are going to pick up uh, our Fight the Good Fight of Faith, number 32. This is what we were going to do Sunday, and uh, I ended up going in a different direction. And um, this coming Sunday is the end of our series on Fight the Good Fight. Um, we, we've spent 33 Sundays this year on that topic, looking at it from different angles and perspectives. We're preparing our heart for our um, 2022 emphasis on, on fullness, uh, being full of all that God has for us. <clears throat> but tonight we're going to talk about the blood covenant. So Father, we open our hearts to you during the time that we've got tonight. Um, of all the things we could have talked about this past year, the things that are so important, one of the things that you put on our hearts was this idea of the blood covenant, helping us to really understand what that is about. And we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to, um, we need to go a little deep tonight, but we, we don't want to get so deep that we lose people or that uh, we lose interest. So I pray that everybody from the youngest Christian to the most seasoned saint will be able to pick up what we need to pick up tonight. I pray that I would represent you well and our church well, and certainly your word well. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, the passage that I want to read when we're talking about the blood covenant is 1 Samuel 18, 1 to 4. Now we're all familiar with this passage because I spent a Sunday on it, I think, when we were talking about the life of David. Uh, and then, of course, just you walking with the Lord. David is one of the favorite stories that we like to get involved with. And we're familiar with this story, but I want to go into the depth a little bit of what happened here. Uh, 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that Jonathan committed himself to David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Now, to, to, we, we probably need to read nearly a chapter to give you the background, but Saul has shown himself to be demonized at best, if not mentally obsessed with his um, um, desire to kill David. Uh, at first, uh, it begins as a fascination with David and he promotes him into his kingdom, into his army. Then Saul becomes insanely jealous to the point that he needs, uh, he needs therapy to be able to sleep at night because of these things that are tormenting him. And he, and he tries to take David's life a couple of times before David says, I, I need to know where I stand. Um, you know, when somebody tries to kill you twice, you, you, need, some, you need to get some things in writing. You need, to, you need to know where he stands. And David had asked Jonathan to help him get a grip on understanding. He said, this is your father. And I would never do anything to hurt your father, but help me understand what we're dealing with. And Jonathan, uh, you've got to understand the selflessness of Jonathan because Jonathan, even though it wasn't an established tradition yet, uh, Saul being the first king of Israel, um, but it was, it was the tradition, it was the way uh, uh, many nations dealt with it. The son, the eldest son, um, 
succeeded the father to the throne. So Jonathan, by every protocol of the day, was going to be the next king. Yet he is becoming more and more aware that God's hand is upon David. Now, it is true that Saul was the Lord's anointed one. That's why David wouldn't hurt him. But you've got to understand, you say, well, why would, why would the Lord choose a man and then lift his hand from him? Well, you'd have to ask Saul about that. That was not the Lord's desire, but Saul brought that on himself. But you remember it was kind of a perfect storm. There were two things that worked against Saul's success. Number one, Israel demanded a king uh, prematurely. Depending on how you interpret a passage of scripture, it may be that um, God intended all along for Israel to have a king because long before they had a king, he was talking about, God was talking about the days when you will have a king and what have you. It may be that it was the plan of God all along, but uh, the motive of Israel could have been wrong. It was at least premature. And God, when Samuel felt rejected because the people wanted a king, God said, they've not rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. So it was a matter of Israel's um, selfishness and wrong desire that made a, a thing happen at least prematurely if it wasn't out and out wrong. That was the first problem. Uh, but the second problem is that Saul kept disobeying God over and over and over again. And uh, that's, it came to the point where God said, I'm going to find a king after my own heart. And uh, when Saul was made king, David couldn't have been king at least not without a system in place to support him. There were a couple of boy kings, but they had a network in place, and that didn't exist during David's lifetime. So um, Jonathan committed himself to David, and John, uh, Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house, no matter David. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, gave it to David with his military gear, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, I, I need to, to say a couple of things that could, um, I, I think I probably need to just stay there for a minute to be sure we understand the importance of, of the blood covenant. First of all, we are in a culture, we don't know anything about blood covenant. Uh, that's not a criticism. We're just, we're just not in a culture like that. We are the product of a Greek Western mindset and we, we have trouble embracing biblical ideas. If we understand the Bible, it's because we make a deliberate choice to interpret life and the scripture from another mindset. Um, the, the closest thing we come to a blood covenant is when we would play cowboys and Indians uh, growing up or those of you my age. I don't, you know, I don't know that cowboys and Indians are played much anymore, but uh, the, the greatest thing you could do is when whoever was the Indian would be willing to enter in blood covenant with the cowboy. And that involved, you know, cutting yourself. And you said, you really do that? Oh, man, I, it's, it's, it's not healthy. We wouldn't let our children do it today. But we didn't do it quite like they did it in the movies, you know, where they took a knife and sliced their hand. The best we would ever do is take a finger and prick it with a pen and just get just a little blood 
And, and this was our blood covenant, you know, it's kind of like that. Uh, that was that was the most we ever did, and that was now. Sometimes we would squeeze it to try to get a lot of blood so it looked gory. The best the best blood covenant was when it ran down your arm, but that took a lot of pinching, and not many of us achieved it. But it was it was something that you know we did. You could become a, a blood brother with somebody, and it was over when the game was over, or your best friend, you know. Um, all it took was getting to middle school and being more interested in girls than the stuff you did growing up with your best buddy and it meant nothing. But in the, in the ancient world, the idea of a blood covenant was something that was very significant. Um, I, I've told you how Billy Graham, when he was a young preacher, was told by one of his professors uh, in, in his preaching class he said, you've got a lot of ability, you've got a lot of passion, you know how to connect to pe with people. He said, but I'm telling you, if you want a career in the church, you need to stop talking about the blood so much. He said, we have outgrown the blood, we are civilized now, and we don't need to talk about the shedding of blood. And it was horrible advice, but thank God Billy Graham, even as a young man, understood that was bad advice. He said, as I look back on it, he said, it wasn't arrogance or defiance, but I realized it was that moment that I, that I purposed in my heart that more than anything else, I would preach on the blood of Jesus. And that's pretty well what he did. And you know the rest of the story. But um, I, I grew up um, in, in the Assemblies of God. I'm, I'm so thankful for my upbringing. I'm, I'm thankful for my pastor. Um, I, I, everything I've done right, I give him credit for, uh, him and my parents. And the church was a, was a good church. It was a small church, uh, about 120 or 30 people, um, you know, would attend any given Sunday. Um, the, the biggest crowd we ever had, because all my life it had record attendance. And all my life, it was record attendance, 228. It's not been broken yet. That was the biggest crowd we had, and it was on an Easter Sunday. But just about every Sunday, like clockwork, we'd have between 120, 130, 35 people. So it was a small church, very, very, uh, very traditional, a good, strong church. We lived for altar times. When I was growing up, in the, uh, I, and I really came to the Lord in the mid-60s, in, up until the, uh, the early 70s when I left home. I don't know if our church was in a revival or if it was a combination of the charismatic renewal atmosphere, the Jesus people atmosphere, but we spent a lot of time in the altar and it was a, it was a great experience. Um, the, the two things that stand out in my mind, and I, I want to be as concise as I can, but it's important, this background is important. We are not Calvinists in the Assemblies of God. And what that means now, a lot of people have a war if you're not Calvinist or if you are Calvinist. Um, but the only thing we really understood about Calvinists when I was growing up, and um, you know, I have a couple of degrees from, from a Calvinist seminary, I'm not ignorant of Calvinism, but the big, the big distinguishing thing about Calvinism when we were growing up was the doctrine of uh, eternal security of the believer, once saved, always saved. 
And uh, that's, we, we are Arminian as opposed to Calvinists, and we're not even full Arminians. Um, Arminian, Arminians, Calvinists say if you're truly saved, you can never be lost. Arminianism, this is the only real weakness of Arminianism that I, that I personally feel is a weakness. Arminianism teaches not only that you can fall from grace, but it teaches that if you're not careful, you can lose it. And I disagree with that strongly. I don't think salvation is something that, that uh, slips off your ring like a finger, even though the writer of Hebrews tells us to be careful uh, like a finger, slip off your finger like a ring. Um, even though the writer of Hebrews says it's, it's a word that's used of a ring that slips off a finger. He says, be careful that these things don't, don't slip away from you. But that's not the position of, of our church. It shouldn't be. Our church should not teach that you can be going along good and just because you get lazy, you lose your salvation. We don't believe that salvation is lost. We do believe that apostasy is a possibility. We believe that you have free will and free moral agency even after you come to Jesus. Um, Calvinists take great offense at that, great offense at that. And they, you know, they, they, so, so we, we have a disagreement with Calvinism, even though we agree on a lot of, a, a lot of uh, points. R.T. Kendall is a Calvinist, uh, so, so that we're, we're, they're, they're not the enemy by any stretch of the imagination. But we taught that we are to, to persevere and uh, we are to continue. And if we didn't persevere and continue, we were in danger of falling away. Um, now, when, if, if a pastor, what I'm trying to say is it takes a, a really steady hand to balance the idea of falling away and then holy living at the same time. It, it, it takes an amazing balance to teach a church that you need to be careful, we don't want to fall away, and you've got to live a holy life because almost invariably what you will end up with is people saying, well, I, you know, I'm saved by faith, I'm saved by grace, but I stay saved by works. That was the biggest battle I had as a young Christian was, was the struggle with assurance of salvation. How could I know that I was saved? And it's like I've said before, if I prayed an hour, should I have prayed two hours? If I won three people to the Lord last year, should I have won four or five? You know, it was a constant self-examination. And I want to tell you, I was, I was well into, into my uh, Bible college years before I ever came to, to settle that issue. Um, I, and God spoke to me. I won't take time to go into it tonight, but he helped me understand there's nothing I can do to make him love me more. Nothing I do will make him love me more. And this is the part that our church struggled with. Nothing I could do would make him love me less. His love for me is, is eternal. His love for me is supreme. And I believe that we are eternally secure as long as we follow the Lord. I don't believe that you have a bad week and you've backslidden. I don't believe that we lose salvation. I do believe that apostasy is possible. If it's not possible, I don't understand why we would have been warned against it so much. 
I believe it's possible, but I don't think it's, I don't think it happens often. You say, oh, I've known a lot of people that got saved and, and, and next time I saw them, they weren't saved. One preacher put it this way. He said, I know when they had it. I know when they didn't have it. That's a horrible theological test. You know, I knew when they had it and I knew when they didn't have it. Um, I, we, we don't teach that. We don't believe that. We believe that you are secure in the Lord as long as you are his child. We don't believe that um, sin separates you from him. It needs to be dealt with. But if that were the case, we would be saved and lost in this perpetual cycle over and over and over again. And that's not biblical Christianity. We are secure in him, but we must also pursue holiness. It, the Bible makes it clear. Let the one who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Grace. See, we thought if someone taught once saved, always saved, they said you can live any way you want to. Uh, the fact of the matter is I've never met a Calvinist that believed that. Um, what the Calvinist would probably say is, well, if you live like you used to live, you probably didn't get saved to start with. And that makes a lot more sense than this cycle of being up and down. But what I'm trying to say is that to understand the blood covenant, you've got to understand that, that delicate balance between I am to live a holy life, yet I am saved because of His grace, and I am kept because of His grace. So does that mean it doesn't matter how I live? Of course not. What did Paul say in Romans 6 when he explained this balance of grace and, and forgiveness? He said, what shall we say then? Shall we? Because he said, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And he knew that some people would say, oh, well, I'll just go ahead and sin because that'll just make room for more grace. He said, what shall we say then in, in Romans 6? He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He says, don't be silly by thinking that even though there is grace to cover all your sin, don't be silly enough to think that I can sin as much as I want or I can live any way I want to and it has no bearing on my life. That's the great error of the of. And I hate to call it hyper grace because grace is so amazing. I don't think we have the ability to make it hyper. But there are those that say once you're forgiven, you never need to repent again. You never need to bring up anything again. That's ridiculous. That's not what the scripture teaches. Even though we have forgiveness, there is still the matter of relationship. So we do repent. We're to confess our sins one to another. We are to, you know, daily ask the Lord to forgive our sins and give us a heart of and a disposition of forgiveness toward others. And, and I know that in the eternal sense, what God has done is good for eternity, but that's from his perspective. We don't live in eternity. We live in time. And God is able to say, oh, I see where you are, but I see where you're going. But we live in relationship. So I want to tell you, if you are a good Assembly of God church member, there is a tension that you have to, have to come to grips with of I am saved by grace, only by grace. I am kept by grace, only by grace. But I must live a holy life. And I must keep myself pure. And I must turn from iniquity. And it has to do with fellowship. It has to do with fruitfulness. And it has to do with reward. 
One way of looking at it is like this. I'm trying to hurry. Y'all, wish, y'all, y'all pick up the pace a little bit here. Um, I'm saved by grace, but I am rewarded by works. The reward I receive in heaven will not be because of grace. It, now, it will be by grace because we can't do anything without the grace of God. But we will be rewarded for our works. And that's the key. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. That's what Paul explained to the Ephesians. But when we stand before him and are rewarded, we will be rewarded according to the way we lived our life. Okay, so that's the balance. In other words, uh, I think it was Adrian Rogers used to put it this way. um, our, Our works don't get us to heaven, but our works follow us there. And that's where we get our rewards. Now, when you understand that, you understand the turmoil I had as a child growing up um, saying, we're not one of those churches that believes in once saved, always saved, um, which is not a totally true. We do believe once saved, always saved, if we're saved. A lot of people come to the Lord, and, but they never really come to the Lord. I do agree that there are times that people come to the altar to get relief instead of release. And not everybody that, that's what I mean, the Lord himself said that, not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will be a part of the kingdom. It's more than just a joining a church. It is a relationship with God. But I, I lived in terror uh, of missing the rapture. I lived in terror of being so close, but not being allowed into heaven. Recently, there's been a big thing on the internet where a pastor of thousands of people said that he had a dream and he went to heaven and was was all excited about being there. And and he said, where do I go in? And the angel says, you're not going to heaven, you're going to hell. And he said, why? He said, I've asked Jesus as my Lord. They said, yes, but you haven't forgiven your wife. And here's a man going to hell because he hasn't forgiven his wife. And he has put terror in the hearts of thousands upon thousands of Christians who have lost all hope because of if they have any struggle with any area of their life, they're going to hell instead of heaven. Loved ones, that is a shoddy grace. That is a cheap grace. And that is not what redeemed us from our sins. So uh, let's go on because some of you looked a little shocked there. So let's, I'm, I'm tired of shocking people. Um, this idea of the blood covenant, this is where we begin to understand our salvation. It contains the idea of sharing. A blood covenant was something unknown in our culture. Now, there are, there are those of us who might have a relationship with someone that's equal to a blood covenant. Um, um, I understand that we may have relationships, but we never went through a ceremony of the cutting and the mingling of blood. I, I understand that because that's not in our culture, but let's understand the ancient culture so we can understand what it means. There was the idea of sharing. Uh, you see with David and Jonathan, there was the sharing of possessions. There was the sharing of protection There was even a sharing of personhood. Sometimes it was done by a touching and mingling of blood together. Uh, Sometimes a small cutting of the the flesh. But this was from antiquity. There's a Bible word that is used especially of the blood covenant. And it's the English phrase loving kindness. 
or steadfast love. It's an attitude shown toward those who are in covenant. When the scripture says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, that's not putting brothers down. You, you know, the Bible says a brother was born for adversity. Now that doesn't mean your brother was born to give you grief. You know, I've heard people say that. Oh, the brother is born for adversity. Yeah, the brother's born to give me a hard time. No, that's not what that verse means. It means when you face adversity, that's why God gives you brothers. That's why he told in Psalms, he said, blessed is the man that has a lot of children. He says, because they will stand with him when he confronts his enemies at the gate. So, you know, our family is designed to be protection and designed to be strength. But he said there is the possibility of a friend who has no blood connection being closer to you even than a brother would be. Um, it's a cherished and a rare relationship. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, I, I hope he gave his heart to the Lord before he died. I, I know he was, he was um, an admirer of Jesus. I don't know that he was ever a follower of Jesus. But Benjamin Franklin said, a man to have a true blood brother friend. He says that kind of friend, a man may have only two or three in his entire life. He said, and he'd be lucky to have that many. He's talking about this very special relationship. Now, to understand what was going on between David and Jonathan, um, and I'm going I'm to walk us through this in a whirlwind because I want to I illustrate it well and, and give Justin time to pray. Um, if I start getting close to the end and Justin hasn't come to pray, just look over at him and just look pitiful and that'll remind me that I need to make time for Justin to pray. But the story begins with, with Saul's jealousy. First um, Samuel 19, it's a horrible story. Saul is, he's literally out of control. He is out of control. He is throwing javelins across the room and um, uh, it, it, it just gets worse and worse. In fact, David has to flee. Jonathan says, you need to flee. He said, I don't want anything to happen to you, but my father is out of control. Saul even got mad at Jonathan when Jonathan would cover for David um, in situations. And uh, it, it just got worse and worse. And then there are years that Saul is hunting David down. At least twice, David has Saul in his grip. Uh, once at En Gedi, Paul, Saul goes into a cave and doesn't understand that David and his men are hiding back there in the cave. Another time he's asleep and David took, uh, what was it, his, his water jug and his, his spear, I think. And then another time David cuts the edge off of his cloak. And David says, if I was your enemy, I could have taken your life. And Saul repents, but like a lot of people's repentance that is not from the heart, he was right back at the pursuit of David just, a, you know, a couple of days later. And um, by the time, that was in 1 Samuel 19, by the time we get to 2 Samuel 9, okay, down, this is under David's loyalty. So Saul was jealous and Saul and Jonathan are killed. Um, 
uh, and meet a horrible death with, uh, with Saul's other sons as well, and they are, they are killed. And that opens a period now. Israel has no king. Both Saul is dead and Jonathan, who would have become king, is dead. And Israel is divided between the house of Saul and the house of David. And we, we, we tend to think that David just stepped right into place, but there was a civil war that went on for years. And the Bible says that the house of Saul got weaker and weaker, but the house of David grew stronger and stronger. But they went through a civil war when Israel had to decide, are we going to follow David or are we going to follow the house of Saul? And it was during this time that there was an opportunity for people to rise up and really show their wisdom. It was during this time that the men of Issachar were pointed out that they understood the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. It was a time of real definition of character. And by the time you get to 2 Samuel 9, David is fully in charge. And um, people were amazed that David did not try to kill off Saul's family. Now, they would be largely killed later, but it wasn't by David's hand. It's another story for another time. And David says something one day, in, in 2 Samuel 9, he says, I wonder if there are any descendants of Saul's house left. And I imagine people said, oh, I wondered when the purge would begin. I knew this leniency and, and amnesty was too good to be true. David just let the dust settle, let his, let his grip strengthen, and now he's going to wipe out the rest of Saul's family. But that wasn't what was in David's heart because David tipped his hand. He said, I wanted to show mercy to them for Jonathan's sake. See, when you become, when you enter into blood covenant, it's not only that person that you have a relationship with, but it is their family that you enter into relationship with as well. You know, in a lot of Christian cultures today, when a baby is either baptized or dedicated, we have godparents, you know, a godfather, godmother. And um, we, 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 you, you might not know where that came from. In the, in the earliest days of the church after imperial persecution began, you didn't know if you were going to survive from day to day in certain places in the Roman Empire because of the persecution. So when you had a child, every child of a Christian parent was given a godfather and a godmother. And that wasn't just an honorary title. That was saying, if something happens to us, will you take our children and raise them to serve the Lord? That's what a godfather and a godmother, godparents were all about. And uh, he said, I want to show something, some kindness for Jonathan's sake. Okay, now Jonathan had um, a, a descendant named Mephibosheth. Now when Mephibosheth, when, when the household of Saul fell, the nurse, Mephibosheth was a baby, the nurse picked him up and tried to run away. She tripped and fell and it resulted in an injury that Mephibosheth was crippled. He was unable to walk. He lived we're in Roman numeral three on your outline. He lived in a place called Lodibar. And I think this is kind of a, a, a picture for us uh, of type, a symbol. He lived in a place called Lodibar, which meant the place of no kindness. You say, well, I used to live there. I know. I, I, yeah, I know. I live there too. I like the way Adrian Rogers described Mephibosheth. 
He was deformed. This is Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. He was deformed, dethroned, doomed, and defeated. That was a good way to describe him. Look at it this way. Mephibosheth was born an enemy of the king. He was crippled by a fall. He had to be sought. He had to be pursued by the king. He had lost in his inheritance. He had nothing and he was under the sentence of death. That pretty well describes us before Jesus comes into our life. And even though he feared David, the benefits of the blood covenant were still available to him. You see, I, I believe that there's two great challenges that we have in being witnesses and bringing the harvest in. Number one, we've got to explain to people, we've got to help them understand why they need a savior. They've got to understand that. And it's not something the, the natural mind can grasp. You know what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit? He said, when the Spirit uh, of, of, of God has come, He will convince the world with the truth about sin, about righteousness and judgment. The world has no idea. It's not natural to the world to understand this idea of sin, what it means to be a sinner, what it means to be righteous. See, both the idea of being a sinner and being righteous to the world is comparison. We might say, well, I'm no Mother Teresa, but, but I'm better than Ted Bundy. So we put our righteousness somewhere in the middle. And, um, uh, you know, and, and we do the same thing with sin. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a God-fearing, tax-paying American citizen. I'm not perfect, but I'm not what I could be. I'm not way out there either. But we don't understand that we're lost without Jesus, whether we, whether we are the, the, the upper crust or the lower crust. We're lost without Jesus. And the thing that a person goes to hell for, see, we don't, we don't understand this naturally. A person doesn't go to hell because they did X, Y, and Z. A person does X, Y, and Z because they're going to hell. A person will go to hell. If they go to hell, they will go to hell for the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what will send everyone to hell. Now, the punishment in hell may vary depending on the works that we do or the things that we did. But only one thing sends us to eternal damnation. That's unbelief. Likewise, only one thing sends us to heaven. And that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's as simple as saying, if I trust Jesus, I'm going to heaven. If I reject Jesus, I'm going to hell. But that, is, that simple concept is not grasped by the world until the Holy Spirit opens their heart. See, we can, we can explain this. You know, I've... I've, I've I tried to, well, I won't tell you what I was doing, but I, I, I listened to Bill Maher for a while. And, and Bill Maher, is, he, he's so frustrating because he operates from a set of beliefs that are so alien to Christianity. He, he, in other words, if I didn't know the Bible, I would be as frustrated as he is. But he is trying to understand God from a worldview that is devoid of revelation, that is devoid of scripture. And, and it's so frustrating and it, it, it frustrated me to listen to him, but it also broke my heart for him because until the Holy Spirit breaks through his heart, 
he'll never understand that we must, we must get people to the point where they understand why they need a savior. And then we must get people to the point that they understand that Jesus is that savior and, and the way grace works. We can't earn it. Um, he feared David, but he was still the, the benefits of the blood covenant because he was the family were available to him, but he had to make a decision. When David offered him to come and sit at the palace and stay at the palace all the days of his life, um, he, he said this, he said, who am I? You know, I'm not worthy to do this, but what we need to understand is that Mephibosheth at that moment, he had to make the decision, am I going to accept the blood covenant or am I going to, am I going to ignore it? Uh, and as he sat there at the table, his infirmity was hidden. And now what I want us to do, and we know, that we know the rest of the story, except for the period of Absalom's rebellion. Uh, when David was away from Jerusalem, Mephibosheth spent the rest of his life sitting at the table of David. Now let's talk about the blood for just uh, a few minutes. Um, this is the most difficult passage for... Um, for some of us to understand out of the book of Genesis, when God and Abraham enter a blood covenant. Now, you know, God gives a lot of conditional promises. He says, if you do this, I'll do this. If you don't do this, then I, will, then I won't do this. And, and he has every right to do that. But God makes a handful of unconditional promises. And one of the promises unconditional is what he made to Abraham. And please remember, I've illustrated this before. I don't need to do it again tonight because we don't have time. But there's a passage in Genesis where God, he's already called Abraham. He's spoken to him. He says, I'm going to give you the promise. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And I'm going to bring you in relationship with me. And I believe God's covenant with Abraham, I believe was a foreshadowing of his covenant with us. I don't believe, you know, some people disagree with that, but I don't believe what Jesus did on the cross is less than what God did for Abraham. Jesus on the cross is ultimate. Um, and the, the way that this would operate, the animal would be cut up into pieces, different types of animals, depending on the wealth of the people making the covenant. Um, you know, God understands our situation. Um, people that were able to bring a, a lamb were to bring a lamb. But if you were a poor family, it's okay to bring birds. That's Mary and Joseph, when they brought their sacrifice, they, they, they didn't have a lamb to bring. They brought birds and, and that was totally acceptable. But um, whatever animal was used, in this case, it was apparently a mixture of animals. They were cut up. Abraham cut them into pieces and laid them out in a certain way. This was the way a blood covenant was enacted. And then the person on this end and the person on that end walked a figure eight among the pieces, passing each other, going to the other end and then walking the, the figure eight back in the other direction. There was a little more to it, but, uh, and sometimes there was the, the, the cutting of their blood, but usually it was the cutting of, of an animal. And they, that was the reason the sacrifice was made and the, the animals cut in pieces. It was a way of saying, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, may I be dissected and torn apart like these animals were. I mean, this was serious business. Okay, so God is waiting, or excuse me, Abraham is waiting for God to show up. 
And there's a lot to learn from the darkness that descended upon the meeting and Abraham having to chase the birds of prey away. But the, the interesting thing that changes everything is that when God came, you don't find this dance of Abraham and God walking among the pieces. You find Abraham overwhelmed and God alone walks the pieces. And what was significant about that is, in, in my opinion, God was saying, you have your part to do, but this covenant does not depend on you. This covenant will not be kept because of me doing my part and you doing your part. And, and I know there is the theology of his part and our part. I know that. But I'm talking about in the big ultimate sense, God said the covenant I'm talking about, it will be executed and it will be carried out because of me, not because of you. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete the work, to bring it to completion. And loved ones, when we begin to understand that if when we give our heart to Jesus and we truly give our heart to Jesus and we truly follow him, I'm not even talking about per, you know, perfection. I'm talking about if we follow him, then God makes a covenant with us that he says, I will get you to heaven. I will get you there. Now you need to do this. And if you don't, it's going to result in grief in your life. If you don't forgive, it's going to slow down my work in your life. It's going to be a hindrance and it's going to feel like you've gone to prison. If, if you need to be chastised, I will chastise you till the, sometimes you feel like you're at the very point of death. He said, if you choose to live in the flesh, you're going to have miserable life. You won't have a reward, but if you choose to live in the spirit, you'll have a joyful life and you'll have a great reward, but I am going to get you to heaven. And I want to tell you, I know it's hard for us non-Calvinists to embrace. But the moment you say, I believe I'm secure as long as I do this, 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 and this, you have moved into a salvation by works. And that's what Paul says to the Galatians. He says, are you so foolish that having begun in the spirit, you think you can be perfected in the flesh? And that's a, that's a difficult thing. It's the power of the blood covenant. It's the, it's the continuation of the mindset where on Passover, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. You say, well, yeah, but they had to believe. Uh, that's true. I mean, we're saved by grace through faith, but not by works. We have to believe, but our belief is not perfect. Or, or very rarely is our belief perfect. I can count maybe three times I think I was flirting with perfect faith. Um, and, and two of the three times I still didn't get what I wanted, even though I felt like I had near perfect faith. But uh, because it wasn't about what I wanted, it was about what God knew was best for me. Um, you see, if you went back to that night in, in Egypt and you had the Smiths and the Jones, you know, those two good Jewish names, the Smiths and the Jones. And they both do the, the sacrifice and they both put the blood on the doorpost. If the Smiths over here 
Uh, if, the, if the firstborn son said, Daddy, I heard what's going to happen to the firstborn son if we don't do it. Are you sure you did it right? And that daddy could swoop up his firstborn son, say, look, here's the blood. We did exactly the way we were told to do. Everything's going to be fine. You go to sleep tonight and you have sweet dreams. You're going to wake up in the morning and we're leaving this place. And you could have it the Jones the firstborn says, Daddy, are we okay? I, I heard that it's got to be done right. And I just and the daddy says, I don't know, son. I've done the best I could, but I can't guarantee anything. I, just here, take a Valium and go to sleep. And we'll just, we'll see what happens. Hey, I'm a firstborn too, you know. And, and I, I, I don't know. You see, I was raised in a mindset that when you say, who's delivered? You'd say, the Smiths. But it was both. It was both because they both were under the blood. They both were covered and the Smiths were grinning and these guys were crying, but they were still under the blood. And we've got to understand how powerful the blood covenant is. Um, in Luke twenty-two twenty, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Listen to the powerful words of Acts twenty twenty. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds. Listen to this phraseology. Very precise. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. God bought this church with his own blood. It's one of the greatest statements of the deity of Christ in all of the New Testament. God bought the church. And how do we know the deal is sealed? Because he paid for it with his own blood. That's why Peter said, No, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, we're redeemed by the precious blood of God, of, of God. And when David said, I want to show this kindness for Jonathan's sake, you see, Mephibosheth understood it was because of another's relationship that he was able to enjoy the covenant. He says, I'm going to do it for Jonathan's sake. But listen to Ephesians 4.30 to 32. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. When you say, I just don't feel like I'm worthy, that's okay. It's because the reason you don't feel worthy is because you're not worthy. And I'm not worthy. None of us are worthy. It's for Christ's sake that God has forgiven me. In other words, it's been paid for. See, you know, my kids, every once in a while, somebody would bless us with a gift certificate. And still do. But I mean, when, when they were little, I'd say, guys, we're going to go and we're going to do this. We're going to buy this. We're going to eat here because somebody's given us a gift certificate. And boy, my kids were so excited to think that we could go someplace and buy something or get food or whatever it was, and, and it didn't cost anything. But what they didn't understand is that it cost plenty. 
It's just that somebody else paid for it. A gift certificate is great, but a gift certificate's not free. It's free to us because of what somebody else has done. And God forgives us for Christ's sake. Now, the covenant effect, uh, this verse, these verses that you have is the story of David blessing Mephibosheth. I want you to notice four things and I want to wrap it up as quickly as I can. Um, when, because of the blood covenant, he was able to receive the king's forgiveness. He was able to begin to enjoy the king's fellowship. He was able to be a participant in the king's fortune. And most importantly, he became in effect part of the king's family. And that's what John said, behold, what manner of love that we should be called the children of God. And I do want to say this is in the notes. Forgiveness is not the best part of salvation. Fellowship is fellowship. Now, what, what do we do with this? Um, I, I know that we all have moments of doubt. I know that we have moments of weak faith, but we should not be fighting the battle over and over again of am I saved? Are my sins are forgiven? Uh, are my sins forgiven? That's, a, that's something that should have been settled a long time ago. And if we're not, if we're not moving past that, I don't think the, the, the power of what God has done in your life has really taken root. I, I really don't. Um, so we need to understand that if, if we're going to have battles, let it be over something significant circumstances or whatever, but, but I encourage you to let the Holy Spirit settle in your heart, even tonight, that your sins are forgiven and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We need to settle that. Uh, let me give you three life lessons that you can take away and then Justin's going to come and lead us in prayer. Here's number one. Don't mistake spiritual dullness for humility. I did that for a long time. Oh, I'm just not worthy. Of course we're not worthy. But I am saved for Jesus' sake. And, and whenever, whenever the devil says, well, you're just not worthy of all of this, just go ahead and agree with him and then let the Lord take up the argument. I'm not worthy, but Jesus made me worthy. So don't, let, don't, don't, don't think that our spiritual dullness is humility that we ought to embrace. You know, just, it's, it's not a, oh, shucks, Lord, I don't, I don't deserve this. No, we, the devil tells you you don't deserve it because he wants to rob you of peace. And he wants to, to rob you of assurance. I, I think my favorite hymn, Bar None, um, if I had, and, I, and I've got two or three favorites depending on where I'm at at the moment. But blessed assurance is something that... It goes to the very depth of my heart. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We can have that assurance right here and now. Number two, don't let your feelings overrule the facts. Um, I, 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 I don't, since I came to the revelation of how much God loves me and, and, and what his grace did. I don't think I've had a moment since I was probably 19 years old. I've never had a doubt of whether or not I'm saved. I've, I've never had a doubt of whether or not I'm going to heaven. Oh, have I been perfect in my faith on God's going to work this out? No. Have I, have I been perfect on a hundred other areas? No. But 
let, let the fact of your salvation never cave into your feelings. And number three, don't let your trials appear bigger than the triumph. Um, Paul calls these problems that we have our momentary light afflictions. Remember what I said earlier, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You know, I told you about the man, um, uh, uh, that the story was told. He was an immigrant to America and he saved up enough money. It took them years to save up everything they would need. And they bought passage to America to come to America and begin a new life and become American citizens. And he said, once they bought their ticket, they put the rest of the little bit of money they had into making up some bread and getting some cheese. And for those weeks of coming across the Atlantic, they ate bread that turned moldy and cheese that had interesting colors growing all over it. But they said, it'll, it'll get us from England to America. And while they were coming in, approaching Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty, the family was crying and he was saying to somebody, he said, we haven't had a decent meal in however many weeks and we've survived on this old moldy bread, but praise God, we've made it to America. And the man said, you've eaten bread that is moldy and cheese that is going bad? He said, yes. He said, let me see your ticket. And he showed him the ticket and the man didn't understand that along with this ticket passage, they received three meals a day and they never took advantage of a meal. And loved ones, don't live that way. Don't live that way. Bob George in his book, uh, Classic Christianity. Come on up, Justin. Bob George talks about marrying a, a beautiful lady from Russia. And this was back during the hard times, the dark times in the, in the 50s. And he said that when he married her and she was able to immigrate to America because she married him, he said he will never get over the, the joy, the sheer joy of the first pair of shoes that he bought for her. He said she wept and wept and wept and he couldn't figure out what it was. And to make a long story short, she had, because of the hard times, she had never had a pair of shoes that fit. She had had shoes, her, her mom and daddy got shoes for her, but they never fit. And she was married before she ever put on the first pair of shoes that fit. And that's the way some of us are with our walk with God. We've got the shoes, but they don't fit. And we just say, it's just hard being a Christian. Ain't life grand, you know. But God wants us to understand that it's joy unspeakable and it's full of glory. Not always easy, but the shoes fit. And it's because God has entered a blood covenant with us. And let me say this, whether you're watching online at some later date or you're here tonight and you don't know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, it's not a guessing game. You can know that you're born again. Get with one of the prayer teams or one of the pastors. Let us pray with you if you don't know that you're saved. I love you. God bless you.